The Agora podcast is covered by a BIPCOT no-gov license. Use and reuse is free and encouraged by anyone except governments or their agents. Find out more at BIPCOT.org. operation of the machine becomes so odious makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part you can't even passively take part and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels upon the levers by all the apparatus and you've got to make it stop you were born free you got fucked out of half of it you wave a flag celebrate <laughs> Central authority has just embedded right in it uh, its own problem, and that is that it means a few people make decisions for many people. All right, welcome back to the Agora Podcast. It's Penguin, as always, uh, with the intro to your um, home for agorism, localism, radical decentralization, and anti-authoritarian concepts. Um, today, we have a very special and very dangerous guest, a um, guest whose uh, podcast I haven't had the fortune to hear yet, but it's probably, other than um, one, the, you know, the one most famous podcaster, probably the most um reference certainly the most uh, famous in my mind podcaster um that i have uh, heard of who i haven't had the opportunity to check out their podcast yet but i'm someone who's very highly respected uh, in this medium that we're kind of in a, in a uh venturing out into uh sec if you don't have any announcements why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest no no announcements um Today, we're introducing a podcaster who I've listened to for a long time, uh, C.J. Kilmer from Dangerous History Podcast. Uh, it's a, just like what it sounds, it's a, a history podcast um, with the from the sort of anarchist or libertarian perspective. Um, it, it's great. If anybody hearing this has not heard his podcast, I highly recommend um, you go through his back catalog. Um, so CJ is also an, uh, an actual history professor, whatever that means. And, um, CJ, welcome to the show, man. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. So, um, if you wouldn't mind, just tell, uh, would you tell our audience, like, you know, who you are, what do you do and why do you do it kind of thing? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, the short version is that, um, I, went to college and got a bachelor's degree in history. And then I went on to graduate school and got a master's degree in history. And then at that point for, for kind of a combination of several different reasons, uh, I decided I initially, when I was going into graduate school, my intention was to go all the way through to a PhD 
Um, but by the time I got through my master's and I got, you know, it, it wasn't a matter of I didn't do well in graduate school. I got almost all A's. I think I only got like one or two B's. Um, and, you know, actually when I, when I completed my master's uh, exams, my advisor actually almost kind of like preemptively kind of accepted me into the PhD program. He said something like, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you're already operating at a PhD level. And so, you know, if you want to be in the PhD program here, you know, you're basically like a, a shoe in. Um, but I, I decided not to for, for a bunch of different reasons. Some of some of them personal, um, like familial stuff going on, but also I, I had become somewhat disillusioned with standard academia for a bunch of reasons that listeners to a show like this could probably suspect. And so I decided to stop there, but I needed to uh, make a living, pay some bills, all that sort of stuff. So I had heard that um, one of the few places where you could still sometimes get a full-time teaching job in college, because I, I wanted to teach college. I definitely didn't want to teach high school if I could avoid it. Um, but most colleges in our time and for the last few, few decades They'll hire you uh, often to be an adjunct, you know, teach like one or two classes part time for very little money uh, with just a master's. But most colleges will not hire you as a full time faculty member unless you have a Ph.D. in whatever field it is. So but I heard from somebody in graduate school that uh, community colleges, which um, often these days aren't even called that anymore. But, you know, colleges where most of the degree programs are two year degrees and whatever, um, that those often will still hire full-time faculty members who just have a master's in their field. So um, I, I did teach as an adjunct for a couple of years at two different colleges, basically working almost full-time hours and getting uh, less than full-time pay and no benefits. But I was able to land a full-time teaching gig at basically uh, what was still at the time called the community college. And I've been there ever since. So I've been teaching uh, college history now for 16 years, I think. And um, almost eight years ago, in in the summer of 2014, uh, I I did something I had been thinking about doing for a couple of years before I finally did it, and I started a podcast, and it's of course the Dangerous History Podcast. And I had already been incorporating a lot of uh, kind of radically libertarian, anarchist, revisionist perspectives on various historical topics into my classes. And I still do, but, and I've never, you know, I'm lucky where I'm at, at least all the time that I've worked there up till now, they've been pretty good at my college about academic freedom and, you know, not trying to like, you know, steer how you teach ideologically in your classes or anything like that. Uh, but even so, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with the, the, the context of like teaching in a conventional classroom setting and having to do exams and having certain like you know, topics you've got to cover in a given amount of time, it does put constraints on you. And so I, I started the podcast in part to have an outlet where, because I might teach, you know, some little revisionist tidbits here and there, say about World War One, but in a class, you know, I've only, I've got to cover World War One in, in just a few classes, a few class sessions. So very often what would happen is I would share some radical revisionist stuff with my students, but because of time, I could only share like the tip of the iceberg of what I actually knew from all my reading and stuff. And so the Dangerous History podcast gave me the outlet to where, you know, if I wanted to spend 28 hours covering the American Civil War, for example, 
um, I could do that where I could normally not do that in a regular classroom setting. You know, plus I can I have even even more of a blank uh, check to to say what exactly what I want to say, exactly how I want to say it. And, um, you know, along the way, I had I had been from a pretty young age. I was some sort of like moderate libertarian, I would say, probably from my early teenage years, just because I was always a, a person uh, who who always very much wanted to think for himself and always read a lot and always, you know, challenged all the prevailing wisdom on everything. And so already by the time I was probably middle school or thereabouts, I was some sort of like moderately vague libertarian. Um, but then while I was in graduate school, um, some of the stuff I was learning then combined with watching, uh, I was, I was in graduate school basically during like the middle of the Bush presidency, uh, the, the W Bush presidency. And so I was learning all kinds of stuff about history that was pushing me in a more radical direction. And at the same time in, in real time, I was watching the, the dumpster fire of the war on terror and everything that went along with it. And then not that long after that, you know, the, the economy started to implode. And so, um, you know, that that then coincided with the the first uh, Ron Paul Republican presidential campaign. And so from there, Ron Paul, I, I, I give him credit. He sort of provided like the the bridge for me to go from being, you know, I, I like to think I was more articulate and knowledgeable and better read than Gary Johnson. But that's sort of like a libertarian, you know, where you're like, yeah, you know, let's legalize weed and have taxes be a bit lower and that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know from Ron Paul, then I get to more radical stuff like Rothbard and uh, Lysander Spooner. Um, and then eventually from there, I just kept following the thread uh, and found more and more, you know, anarchists and, and good leftists too, for that matter. There, there are some, some good uh, leftist writers and intellectuals out there uh, whose work has benefited me tremendously. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I cover uh, mostly American history and that's just because that's what I teach more of. So that's what I've done more reading in, in, in recent years than anything else. And I know that most of my, well, I, I do have, you know, a fair amount of listeners all around the world that the majority of my listeners are not surprisingly Americans. So um, American history topics often tend to get the most uh, listens and downloads and whatever. So, yeah, that was the short version. I guess that was kind of long. <laughs> I'd hate to see the long version. Um, no. And you did do a, what, Man, it had to been more than twenty-eight hour series on the Civil War, which I th I thought was amazing. Um, everybody should go check that out. And yeah, th thank you. That's, that's still a fan favorite. And I I did actually when I wrapped it up, I did actually sit down and calculate all the amount of hours um, that all the episodes together combined was, and I forget what it was. I think it was around thirty hours or something like that. Like that. Yeah, it just went on forever, and in in my mind, you finally, you put to bed the idea um, that any libertarian should have any sort of sympathy for the Confederacy, which is something you see an awful lot. And I can understand hating Lincoln, but um, that, right. you know, just like anything else, it doesn't mean the other side <laughs> is good, right? The, the, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I oppose, I basically side um, with, with Lysander Spooner's take, and of course he lived through the Civil War. Um, and also with the take of uh, Jeffrey Hummel, who's one of my favorite uh, authors on the Civil War, which is that, you know, the Confederates were really primarily motivated by wanting to defend slavery as an institution in their in their secession. And so, you know, 
it's really not a libertarian move to try and portray them as heroes and try and pretend like they weren't motivated by slavery when they themselves said so at the time. Um, but that also doesn't mean that, um, you know, that, that you have to cheerlead for Lincoln's invasion and crushing of their secession by brute force, that you can kind of be against both in a way, uh, in, in the same way that, you know, I'm against, um, us nato involvement with the doings in ukraine that doesn't mean i think putin's a good guy and that doesn't mean i think his invasion of ukraine is a good thing right you can you can kind of be uh, against both hey all sec here i wanted to tell you about agoristacres.com they're a seed company uh friends of the show uh this is where i get my seeds from uh here at the homestead um, they've got a lot, a big, wide variety of seeds. Um, they got free shipping on orders over uh, 20 bucks. It's fast shipping. Um, if you place an order, it'll be shipped next business day. A lot of cool packaging. And you can pay with uh, crypto right on the site. Um, and they're, they're agorists. And uh, they also believe in the, the importance of producing your own food. Um, and, um, they have a wide variety of seeds that you won't necessarily find in a lot of other places, a lot of cool varieties, interesting, um, seeds, and they can, if there's something that you're looking for, they can probably get it for you too. So, um, check out agoristacres.com. And if you use promo code, uh, Agora 10, uh, you'll save yourself 10%. Thanks guys. Yeah, it's kind of that quote from Rick and Morty. It's, you know, you're both pieces of shit and I can prove it mathematically. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, that was good. And um, I also recommend your World War One series um, and the Wilson series, which were both great. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the Wilson series is still um, – I've still got a lot to do on that one. I'm only – um, like about uh, two years into his presidency and ha haven't even gotten into World War I yet with that series. So um, there's still a lot to come on Wilson. I, I just, last few months have been, have been a tough time for me and my, my uh, output of episodes has been down a bit, but hope you get back to it when I go on summer break in about a month. Nice. Um, yeah, because this is all Wilson's fault. Um, so you mentioned revisionist revisionist What's that? The Boo Wilsons. Everyone's Boo, yeah. Everyone I know's uh at least favorite president. He is definitely yeah. up there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, we'll see uh how, how bad uh President Go Brandon does. He seems to be so far wanting to give Wilson a run for his money, but we'll see how much damage he does. Well, I mean, if the nukes don't go off, you know, he'll be just like any other shit corporate chill, you know. I don't know. He just but um, if the nukes go off, then, yeah, he's worse than Wilson. Um, so you, you mentioned being attracted to revisionist history. And for anyone that's not familiar, can you explain what that is and why um, it's, it's a valuable method for looking at historical events? Sure. Yeah. The, the basic idea of, of revisionist history, and this has to do with the concept called um, historiography, which is something that... Uh, if you if you major in history, you start to learn about you know undergrad, and then if you go into graduate school, it's a lot of what you deal with. Um, historiography is basically looking at the ways that 
previous generations of historians have covered a particular topic. And, you know, you can often kind of like identify schools of thought and that sort of thing. You know, so there's there's different groups of historians that have like different takes on something like, let's say, the Civil War, for example. Um, and revisionist history is whenever uh, a, a new generation of historians or even just maybe one historian uh, challenges one of the previous paradigms, particularly if it's like a pretty dominant paradigm. So let's just take one topic. Like if, if you, if you are covering the dropping of the A-bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, if you're coming at it and your, your conclusion ultimately is that those uh, A-bombings were unnecessary uh, unjustified, et cetera, et cetera. And the normal story that they were totally justified, totally necessary, et cetera, is, is propaganda. Then you're being a revisionist when it comes to that, that particular topic, because that the dominant paradigm for decades, um, pretty much since, since, since shortly after the war ended is that, oh yeah, no question. The, those A-bombings were totally good and justified, saved a ton of lives, blah, 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 blah. So, Anytime you're you're challenging a previously dominant kind of take on a topic in history, you're doing revisionist history. Now, not all revisionist history is created equal. Um, you know, just because somebody is challenging a previous paradigm on a topic doesn't necessarily mean they're right. Doesn't necessarily mean their argument is stronger than the argument of the dominant school of thought or whatever. But if if you're doing it based on solid reason and evidence then, um, you know, I see that as a good thing. And people often will dismiss it as like, oh, you're rewriting history. Well, sometimes history needs to be rewritten because a lot of times the first draft of, of history about a topic or sometimes even the first several drafts of history about a topic are pretty much just propaganda. And especially when you're dealing with topics over the last maybe like 120 years because propaganda has always been a thing that those in power use. but particularly ever since about the turn of the 20th century, propaganda has like gone next level for a variety of reasons. And in particular, in regard to wars, propaganda is just overwhelming in wars since about the 1890s. And one of the things that happens, because so much propaganda is cranked out every time there's a war, is that very often the propaganda becomes like the first version or the first draft of the history of that particular topic. And so it's very important if you want to really get at the truth of like, you know, why a particular war happened, what really went on in it, you know, is one side actually a hundred percent to blame? The other side is totally innocent. Did one side actually commit all of the war crimes and atrocities and the other side is pure as the driven snow? You know, um, if you, if you want to debunk that stuff and try and dig up like what the actual truth is about a particular conflict, then revisionist history becomes absolutely vital. Yeah, one way I've, I've thought about it, um, especially when you're closer to the actual historical event in terms of time, is the people reporting on these things are most likely <clears throat> those that are closest to power in general. So, like, um, the, the news media and think tanks and the universities are 
the mo most closest to power and usually the most susceptible to uh, propaganda or the, the narrative of the state. So that becomes, especially during the time of the historical event or shortly after, that becomes the, the narrative, right? Whether whether that's true, false, um, it's, it's propaganda from those who's in the seat of power and um, those closest to them. So the further away in time we get from that specific event, whichever event we're talking about, whether that's the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima or, or it's World War II or one or whatever the case is, the further we get from time, the less that is necessarily the case um, because we can look at it with uh, uh, sort of fresh eyes and not so directly affected by um, our relationship to power and propaganda. Does that make sense at all? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, the more time passes, the more it's possible for more people to have some emotional distance and some uh, a greater degree of objectivity. Like it was harder for the World War II generation. Uh, some of them, some of them did did take a revisionist look at the war, like Howard Zinn, for example. But in general, the World War II generation simply didn't want to didn't want to engage with any. Um, revisionism of World War II because they lived through it. Many of them fought in it. And so they wanted to believe the simplistic propaganda narrative about that conflict. And so, you know, time gives you emotional, emotional distance. And then there's also, you know, there's other factors aside from just the propaganda, which often becomes the first draft of the history. There's, e even if there wasn't tons of propaganda being cranked out, with a lot of major world events, especially wars, but also other things like economic crashes and, um, you know, things like like the the, the COVID uh, hysteria, even if the the media was trying to be honest, and obviously that's a big if that we all know, you know. But let's just stipulate they were genuinely trying to be honest when they're covering something like a war uh, or or COVID or something like that in real time. There's still the problem of kind of the fog of war, so to speak, right? So even if our media, for example, was trying to be as accurate and objective and honest as possible, which I don't believe, but if they were in regard to the conflict in Ukraine, there still would be a huge amount of uncertainty as to what exactly is really happening, who's really doing what, just because the, the chaos of the situation and the fact that you can never know all the information about what's going on when a major world event happens. So you know, that uncertainty also very often means that as time goes on, it's important for uh, people to go back and re-examine some of these topics and kind of say, like, you know, is our general narrative take on this event really uh, accurate to what actually went down and who was really doing what and why? And then there's there's one other variable that is especially um, prevalent in the last century or a little bit more, and that is secrecy. That uh, governments have made so much of what they do secret. And so very often, either you never find out the full story of, of what happened about some important event, uh, if it involves the state, or if you do, it's like 50, 60, 70 years later, right? So, you know, like, what was it? Uh, Operation Northwoods, right? Which, you know, lots of people in our kind of milieu know about today, and that millions of Americans know about because Joe Rogan mentions it frequently. But you have to understand, Operation Northwoods, those documents, 
they weren't exposed to the public until the late 90s. So, you know, over 30 years after that actually happened, that some of the highest ranking uh, generals in the Pentagon were basically saying, let's do a false flag so we can go to war against Cuba, right? That didn't become exposed to the public until 30 some odd years later when, you know, it no longer is as directly relevant and, um, you know, people don't care as much. But it's another case that shows you like how important is revisionist history because one reason for doing revisionist history, aside from the fact that people that are too close in time to an event often have a warped understanding of it, um, another reason for doing revisionist history is simply that very often more information comes out over time. You know, as as documents get exposed, whether whether intentionally uh, or unintentionally. So same thing with like MK Ultra. Uh, MK Ultra didn't get exposed to the public until uh, the mid to late seventies. So, but a, a lot of the things that we know about at MK Ultra are things that happened in the forties and fifties and early sixties. So. Um, that that's another kind of variable as to, you know, why is why is revisionist history important and valuable? Just things come out that you didn't know about before. Yeah, MK Ultra was. I was thinking about that as you were you were talking about Operation Northwoods. That's another obvious example. And even things like they didn't show the um, was it the Zapruder footage? Yeah, of Kennedy being shot. That's the Zapruder footage. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. And for like. I don't know how long was that until the eighties, I think uh, uh, it, was, it was either late seventies or eighties. I forget exactly when it was first shown to the public, but yeah, it was like, it was like 15 or 20 years after, after the assassination. Right. So that's basically, I mean, you could call that evidence also, you know, in, in developing a, a historical narrative about what happened that day. And that, that piece of evidence didn't come out till years and years later. So, um, I think that, um, you know, if if we everyone here is an anarchist, so if we assume that the state is going to do whatever they can to manipulate the narrative in their favor, it is good to look back at previous narratives that um, have come from the, the the state or people adjacent to the state um, to develop these narratives that make the the U.S. government look good. To look. Uh, like I said, to look in uh, the past to realize that these narratives are, let's say, uh, shaky at best um, in, in previous generations that can also give us insight into uh, what is potentially occurring in, um, in the here and now with uh, uh, whatever state, uh, the narratives that the state is trying to construct and when I, you know, when I say the state, I also mean these institutions and think tanks and, and, um, you know, it's, these people are liars. So to assume that they're telling the truth now would be silly, especially if you understand and can look back through history and understand all these times that they've constructed narratives that, uh, hold themselves. If they're not outright lies, they at least, um, construct the narratives in such a way that makes the the U S government look like the good guys in some sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just, just think about this. Imagine if you went back in time uh, with knowledge of, let's just say MK ultra and you went back in time to America in like the mid fifties, sort of the heyday of MK ultra stuff. And, and you tried to tell people on the street journalists, whatever, like, Hey, the CIA is, you know, dosing people with LSD 
without their knowledge or consent just to see what will happen. Um, and, you know, imagine you describe something like like Operation Midnight Climax and you said, hey, the F the, the CIA is setting up uh, uh, flop houses where prostitutes are bringing Johns back and they're uh, having sex with them, but also giving them a massive dose of LSD without their knowledge. And then there's a one way mirror. And on the other side is an American Bureau of Narcotics agent named George White who's temporarily being uh, loaned out to the CIA and he's uh, audio and video recording everything that happens <laughs> in the, in the room as the prostitute doses the unsuspecting John with LSD. Like if you just went to, you know, George McFly in 1955 or whatever, and told him all this, they would look at you like you're basically the equivalent of a, a schizophrenic homeless person on meth. But, we now know that like that absolutely was happening at that time. And that sort of stuff always makes me wonder because first off, a, a lot of the shadiest things they do don't come out for decades. And then also a lot of the shadiest things they do never come out. In other words, the things we know, let's just take MK ultra as our example still. Yeah. Eventually aspects of MK ultra get exposed, but Every MK Ultra research expert I've ever heard has always said the same thing that we only know maybe 10% of all that went down as part of MK Ultra. They burned because, a lot of the files. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. They successfully destroyed most of the documents. Most of the stuff that survived survived by accident and by luck. So, you know, the stuff that we know about is pretty pretty insane and 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 horrible. Imagine all the other stuff that we'll never know about that they did successfully cover up and destroy the evidence for. And that always makes me then wonder, like right now, what's going on right now that either we'll only find out 30, 40, 50 years later, or we may never find out at all. Right. And it's tricky because it, it's very easy to go down the rabbit hole too far into crazy town, you know, to, to gaze into the abyss too long and start to think that like everything is a, is a you know cia psyop or whatever and so one of the tricky things when you start to go down this sort of these sorts of rabbit holes is to try and not go too far down the rabbit hole right to try to not you know end up in like david ike territory or something like that hey sec here i wanted to introduce you guys to appalachian apothecary that is uh that's my lady um she makes boatload of tinctures, salves, um, medicines, um, some uh, libations, um, all, all very good, all from stuff we grew here at the homestead, um, and she knows what she's doing, she's a wizard, um, you, you may have heard her on the chemistry episode, but uh, if you're interested in any of that, um, go ahead and touch base with me um, at SecMagora. On Telegram, S E K M C G O R A, all one word, all caps. Or you can find us in the uh, Agora Podcast Discord, Telegram, or find us on Twitter at Agora underscore pod. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, but it, really, it's the comment, it's the progression of history. So, you know, you, you hear about the, um, <clears throat> the stealth bomber and everything. And I think probably 91 when um, the Gulf War happens, the first Gulf War. And uh, but they had that in development for decades and decades and 
previous iterations and decades before that, going back to the 40s, going back to actually like uh, I believe the Germans in World War II. But point point being, um, that that technology was was cutting edge, completely classified technology, and you find out about certain programs and frankly like conspiracies that the government does and yeah you there's there's this time lag so you are you're always just wondering what's what's ahead of the time lag what are we going to find out about the present in 20 30 years and that's whether it's technology or or um political machinations or outright you know criminal conspiracies um yeah it, you can't help but think that yeah here's here's an interesting one that um you know, people may or may not know about uh, in the seventies, a lot of dirt came out on the CIA and um, there was, there was the Rockefeller investigation, which I believe was a limited hangout. And then there was the church committee in the Senate. And I think that was more legit. I think Frank church was like genuinely uh, a decent guy who was trying to really, you know, dig up the truth. And one of the things that came out in the, the church committee hearings in the Senate was that the CIA had developed basically a gun that could shoot a dart into a person and the, the dart contained a poison that pretty much perfectly mimicked a heart attack. And the dart itself was like made out of, out of frozen liquid. So you would shoot it's like a little air pistol. Basically you would, if you shot a person with this dart, it would make a tiny wound going in the dart itself would simply melt into their body. So there wouldn't be like a, you know, like a little metal dart or whatever left as evidence. The dart would just dissolve and melt into their body. And then the drug in the dart would pretty much perfectly mimic a regular old heart attack. It would give you a heart attack. Right. So think about that. Um, you know, almost 50 years ago, the CIA had something where they could assassinate a person in a way that was virtually untraceable, right? That, you know, a, a medical examiner, unless they knew they were supposed to be looking for a tiny little entry wound or whatever, they wouldn't notice like a little tiny pinprick little wound somewhere on your body. And, um, you know, the, the, the dart would have melted long before they got to you. And so, you know, even a, even a competent coroner would be doing an autopsy and basically be like, yeah, this person had a heart attack. You know, so if they had that capability to to basically kill you and make it look like a heart attack perfectly uh, 50 years ago, like what the hell do they have now in their toolbox? Right. And and by the way, you can actually look up on YouTube. Um, you, you can probably look up video clips of the church committee hearings in the 70s. There's one clip I've seen where uh, Senator Barry Goldwater, very, very um, identifiable with his square jaw and big, big uh, glasses. Senator Barry Goldwater is like holding up the little air pistol and examining it during the Senate hearings. It's, it's like, you know, it's, it's amusing as hell, uh, as, as uh, evil and disturbing as it is, right? And it's, you know, from a mental health perspective, man, once you start to learn about this stuff, it's like it's hard to not end up uh, being, being more, more paranoid than you want to be, right? Because you want to be paranoid on some level. But it's obviously not good for your mental and physical health if you're too paranoid over over too long of a time. My favorite part about uh, reading back on the CIA and like MKUltra and all the secret programs that they allegedly all, all shut down in the 60s, right, is they all sound like things that a person doing a lot of LSD would come up with. So, like, we're going to train cats to be spies. You know, they had the most, like, ridiculous shit that, like, you're right, you would sound, 
fucking nuts if you went back and tried to tell people that they were doing things as they were. They were trying to train cats to be spies and like all sorts of weird like shit with otters. I don't know. There's all sorts of just wacky and zany ideas. And I think the, um, it's something about, I think you might call it normalcy bias maybe, but something about people assume that, oh, that was back then. They were, oh yeah, the CIA, they were crazy and they were out of line and they're doing all sorts of wild stuff, but it was the Cold War, you know, and for some reason, you know, nothing ever happened. Nobody was ever held accountable for any of that stuff. You know, the Senate Committee on CIA assassinations and all that stuff, nothing ever happened. And then we're supposed to assume that they aren't doing those things, but worse now. I mean, they were... You know, they were dosing entire cities with different uh, pathogens and all kinds of just evil stuff. And sometimes it, sometimes that stuff wasn't so evil. It was just crazy and silly um, because they just had an unlimited budget, no oversight, and were doing lots of LSD. They were dosing each other in their fucking offices. So, like, why do you think it is that people seem to have almost more trust in the CIA and the FBI now than we did even maybe 10 years ago, you know, like, uh, especially during the Bush years when, especially when all the torture stuff came out, you know, nobody trusted the CIA then either, but it seems like we've, I don't know if we've collectively forgotten or we just assume that that all, you know, went away or I, I would assume they're doing worse things now. That's just me. But, um, what, why do you think that that is, you know, is it, um, is it something in the water? Is it institutional? Is it, um, you know, so, is it just forgotten about? I, I, I think it's a combination of things. I think part of it is the time gap, right? Like we were saying before, you know, a lot of the, the really nasty stuff, if it ever gets exposed, it's not until usually at least 20, if not 50 or more years later. Right. And that, that provides um, emotional distance where, you know, most people, if they hear about some horrible thing that the CIA or the FBI or whoever did 40, 50 years ago, most people are not going to have the same visceral emotional response to that information as if it was exposed in real time, like right after it actually happened. And that's just how most people are wired up. Um, I often say that one of my superpowers, and it's a really stupid superpower that's never going to get me into a cool superhero team, is, but that, that allows me to do what I do, is that I have the capability to get just as pissed off about something uh, bad done by a person in power a long time ago as I do something being done bad by a person in power right now, right? So I can, I can, I don't know what the reason is for, for me being wired this way. But I can get just as like emotionally invested in being pissed at something Woodrow Wilson did over a hundred years ago as I can be, uh, you know, in, in my emotional response to something horrible done by the Biden administration yesterday. But most people aren't that way. And so, you know, when a lot of this stuff gets exposed, it's 40 years later and people don't really care. And on top of that, the the media is complicit because they normally if they cover those sorts of um, uh, revelations at all, they, they kind of like stick it on the back page of, you know, section five E so to speak. Um, and they, they, you know, always are going to spotlight something else to distract you 
when when those things actually do get exposed. Um, on top of that, particularly talking about things like the Pentagon and the FBI and the CIA, they've always been connected with Hollywood and TV and have always been carefully um, cultivating and curating the way that the, they are portrayed in those media. But those things have only gotten like exponentially more pronounced in the past two or three decades. So it's basically never that you will see a big budget movie or TV show that deals with the military or the CIA or the FBI in which those institutions were not involved in the production. And since most Americans, what little history they know usually comes more from TV and movies than from anything else by having those institutions have that relationship with the, the entertainment media corporations. It I mean, think of it. No, no one has made a movie about COINTELPRO. No one has made a movie about, you know, all sorts of, of horrific uh, things that we know that these sorts of agencies have done. Um, there's only been one uh, significant depiction of even a small particular aspect of MKUltra that I know about, and that's the Netflix series Wormwood, which deals with one particular uh, uh, aspect or instance of MKUltra where um, uh, a military chemist named Frank Olson ended up dead due to his involvement with MKUltra. And it's it's a great it's a great miniseries. I recommend it. Uh, Wormwood on Netflix. But like, other than that, nobody has done a, a mainstream TV series or or movie dealing with any aspect of MK Ultra whatsoever. Even though a lot of it's been exposed for you know over forty years at this point. So meanwhile, if you go to see a mainstream movie or TV show that deals with the the military or deals with the FBI or deals with the CIA, good luck finding one that deals with those institutions that portrays the institution itself in a negative light, right? You might occasionally get a movie where like there's one rogue CIA agent who's misbehaving or whatever, right? Or, or a movie about the military where there's like a couple of bad apples doing something they shouldn't. But always in those movies, if you pay attention, the overall institution itself is righteous. And usually by the end of the movie, the righteous institution solves the bad apples or whatever, right? So the, the propaganda is, is more, um, hegemonic even than it used to be, say, you know, 40 years ago or more. And then one other thing I'll say, and this, this I think is probably just a, just a constant over time, is that most people don't really want to know the truth. Most people um, are comforted, like they, they want to believe that the FBI are just these noble guys going out there trying to catch Hannibal Lecter and Bonnie and Clyde, and that's all they do. They want to believe that the CIA is just, you know, Jack Bauer saving you from terrorist attacks, or that the, the, the Pentagon is just, you know, protecting you from um, all these these evil nations and, and terrorist organizations around the world that want to kill you tomorrow. So because they want to believe, then the propaganda is that that much more effective, right? Because it is disconcerting, you know, when when you start to get red pilled to some of this this you know real but dark history it is disconcerting you know it's it's tough to realize that the the institutions and the people running them that most people grow up being raised to think like oh these are all uh yeah occasionally there's a bad apple or occasionally these institutions make a mistake or whatever but in general they're benevolent and in general they're mostly doing good things and looking out for you and whatever um to then to then you know be given uh 
incontrovertible evidence that that no, these are actually um, evil institutions, and most of the people in them are evil. Yeah, I'll tell you, <clears throat> and I've told this story before, but I grew up um, raised by sort of hippie anarchist conspiracy theorists, right? So I was super red pilled at a very early age, and I actually don't recommend that at all because, like you just said, it gets dark. I mean, I struggled with depression quite a bit and anger as a teenager as a result of that. Because when you know how dark like the world really is and you can't trust any of these institutions and you think your teacher is feeding you government propaganda or, you know, works for the Illuminati or whatever it is, that's um, that's rough. I'm not going to I had a rough time of that. Um, and especially when you're very aware of just the brutality of the wars and secret wars going on around the world and your own government shipping crack cocaine into the ghetto. And like, it's just, um, it's not easy to, to realize that. And it's not easy to grow up as a young man that way either. So I don't, I sympathize with somebody that, I mean, there's been many times in my life where I would have been like, wow, I kind of wish I just didn't know any of this, you know, it's just like, um, it, it can eat away at you quite a bit. And, um, so I, I empathize with somebody who's just like, I just don't want to know, you know, it's just, um, yeah, that, that's one of those things that the movie, the matrix portrayed really well was, yes. uh, the, the, the one character who like desperately wanted to get back into the matrix and forget everything like, or, or in, uh, they live right. Where, where Keith David is like violently trying to resist having the glasses put on him. Right. Um, yeah, it's understandable. And, you know, with my own kids, I've, I've had to be very, uh, uh, careful to not drop too many red pills on them too early. You know, I, I've, I've been very deliberate and, you know, really tried to not like when my kids are six, be like, you know, Hey, the CIA is torturing people or whatever. Um, Hey, the government lies to create wars. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, you got to kind of, uh, you know, ease them into it as their, their maturity and everything, you know, hopefully enables them to handle some of it. And yeah, just, you know, personally for me as somebody who's like constantly uh, researching this stuff and trying to understand it, like it's, it's tough, you know, when you, when you spend a lot of your waking hours gazing into the abyss, the abyss gazes into you. And I, I I'm, I'm genetically uh, prone to depression anyway. So that that's tough, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely been times where just working on podcasts and, and series and things where, I've been slowed down by being mentally and emotionally affected by what I'm doing. Like, I still want to do it. I still feel like I'm providing value by, by, you know, creating uh, digestible narratives that, that share important, but often dark truths with, with people. Like, I, I think somebody needs to do that, right? Somebody needs to be the doctor who tells you when you have cancer, right? Even though that's going to be a downer, like you want the doctor who's going to tell you the truth about how bad it is, uh, even though that might ruin your entire weekend. But definitely, you know, I, I, I go through my, my dark periods and whatever, and, you know, I can remember multiple times where I'm working on a particular episode or a particular series, and it takes a lot longer than it really should in part because it, it slows you down. Like one, one that I'll always remember is I, I did a fairly big episode years ago about 
the A-bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And that was one where I remember being noticeably slowed down in my work because it was just so uh, so depressing to really read the nitty-gritty details of, you know, like school kids on their way out to, to elementary school in, in Hiroshima. And then the A-bomb falls like just a block away from where they're waiting for the bus or something like that, you know? Um, and it's, it's just, yeah. So, you know, I, I totally get it. Uh, if, if someone wants to not gaze into the abyss fully, um, the problem though is very often then those people become enablers of the status quo whether actively or passively and so you know part of me is like i want to i want to rattle their cage and and uh you know see if i can get any of them to to wake up just because um you know the, as long as only a very small percentage of people know about these sorts of things in history then it's that much more likely they're going to continue and and increase you know, uh, sun, sunlight being the best disinfectant. If, if everybody really understood all this sort of dark history, then at the very least, it would make the people in power have a harder time uh, getting away with what they want to do. Yeah, yeah, I go back and forth on that, you know. So I was a like super conspiracy um you know, truth or conspiracy theorist, that kind of thing, all through my, my teenage years and late teens. And eventually I came to the realization, like, um, let's just take 9-11. Let's, let's say that, that, that it actually was an inside job, right? What if I, you know, I'm an anarchist and I was then too. If I, I thought to myself at the time, if I could convince everyone that 9-11 was an inside job, let's say, or Kennedy, the Kennedy was killed by the CIA and the mafia. And everybody agreed with me. Would that result then in um, a distrust of the government and an anarchist society? I don't know, because it might be the case that, well, now we need a new, we need more government oversight. We need new committees and new government. We got to get you, that was, those were bad apples, like you said. Those were bad apples, and we're gonna need to. We need all these new government agencies for oversight to make sure we, that never happens again. You know, it might actually be worse. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, that doesn't necessarily me mean people want to be more free. It just means that they think that that particular government was uh, was bad, or that particular politician, or that particular branch of the of the government, or it might end up being more government intrusion, more government spending, more because um, now we need a committee to make sure no, you know, the CIA and all the it needs all these funding, and we need to print more money, and we need we need all these surveillance measures to make sure that you know the rogue CIA agents don't um, you know shoot Kennedy in the back of the head or whatever the thing is. And it, it was at that point that I just kind of almost walked away from. Uh, being so interested in um, in cons in conspiracies, in the sense that I don't believe that it actually it necessarily strikes at the root of the problem, which is centralized power, in my opinion. But um, I don't. What? What do you? Uh, I guess that's not really a question. But do you think that? 
you as an anarchist, do you think that if you would change everybody's mind about certain events, that that would necessarily lead to an anarchist society? Or do you think it'd be more like what I just described, where they would need more government agencies? Uh, I, I go back and forth in my own head right. between optimist and pessimist on these sorts of things. You know, I, I, I do think there's a there's a problem that the majority of human beings are hardwired by our evolution as uh, tribal primates to want to conform and get along more than to want to really know the truth. And, you know, most people don't think for themselves, don't want to think for themselves and are not really uh, in one way or another, fully capable of really thinking for them for themselves. Um, on the other hand, though, you look at history, and history is often driven by small, dedicated minorities. Right? There's that famous, I think, Samuel Adams quote where he says, "It does not take a majority to prevail; it takes a minority, uh, an irate, tireless minority, keen on setting brush fires of liberty in the minds of men." something like that right and and that's true history is always driven by minorities of of overall populations whether for good or for bad right so you know the the bolshevik revolution that resulted in the establishment of the soviet union was carried out by a tiny percentage of the overall russian population at the time and then you know the the majority is always just sort of like ballast that kind of goes whichever way the wind's blowing and just kind of goes along with whatever and then at the same time, the end of the Iron Curtain, all those those revolutions in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries that brought down communism in most cases largely peacefully, um, those were those were minorities too. You know, the the group that brought down communism in a place like uh, Czechoslovakia or Poland, you know, started off as very small groups, very small, um, often persecuted dissident groups. But eventually they gathered steam and, and eventually they, they exposed the regime as being an emperor with no clothes on. And, you know, eventually they got to a point where that kind of just go with the flow, whichever way the wind blows majority was like, yeah, you know what? We don't want the communist regime uh, in charge in our country anymore. And those things felt like a house of cards in most cases. So, you know, there's uh, there's reasons to be optimistic and reasons to be pessimistic. And I, I remain um firmly agnostic as to like strategy, you know, to bring about uh, a greater degree of human freedom going forward. You know, I, I'm not one of these people that, that pretends like I have some sort of answer, like, Oh, this one strategy, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, which strategy, you know, out of the various strategies, whether, uh, education is the key, whether political action and activism is the key, whether, uh, agorism and things like that are the key, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like a let, let a thousand flowers bloom. Like everybody who's got a strategy that they believe in and that they have some talent and aptitude in like, I, Hey, by all means, you know, use it, use any means necessary. Right. So, you know, that, that's sort of my take on that. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely for throw everything at the wall at this point, you know, and see what sticks, um, in terms of strategy. Um, question I had is, do you think the the propaganda is actually worse now? Or do you think it's just we, you know, we don't have three TV stations anymore. 
Right. So they had a better handle on the narrative and propaganda, you know, 40 years ago than they do now. So do you think it's just more noticeable now and it's about the same as it always was? Or do you think the propaganda is uh, worse now? I think it's worse now because uh, there are there are more media that they can use. You know, if you went back to like World War One, basically you had print, whether it's visual like posters or or printed stuff like books and pamphlets, and then you had things like like early. I don't know if if in World War One they were at records yet or if they were still using Edison cylinders, but you know, you could have some basic audio recordings for like war propaganda songs like over there and whatever. Uh, and then you had movies, which, you know, were pretty powerful, but were also pretty primitive to compared to how sophisticated movies are now. Right. Um, you didn't have in world war one, you didn't have TV. Um, you didn't really have radio yet. That came in more later. And uh, you certainly didn't have anything like the internet. And so the amount of tools they have in their toolbox, as far as media that they can use for propaganda purposes uh, is vastly more today than it was back then and in addition to that their their basic narrative moves are often the same because they work because if, if you look back at like a lot of the the early 20th century real uh, prophets of propaganda right you're looking at guys like edward bernays probably being the most noteworthy example on that they they combined insights gained from uh psychology with insights gained from experience in um journalism and advertising as far as like how to manipulate people's emotions and perceptions and beliefs and whatever. And so most of the basic narrative moves that they use are more or less the same as over a hundred years ago. I, I did an episode. Um, my most recent new episode was uh, my top 10 uh, propaganda techniques. And all the things I had there were things that you could find in world war one and world war two in propaganda that are also like happening right now in regard to the war in Ukraine, for example. So the, the narrative moves are pretty much the same because those are like magic tricks that don't get old. Those are like, imagine you're a magician, you, you develop a few tricks and for some reason they work every time, even if they're the same tricks you've been doing for decades, right? Like why would you go to the trouble and hassle of trying to invent new tricks if the ones you've been doing forever keep killing every time. Um, but even though the, the main narrative moves are the same, they've gotten more sophisticated and subtle and skillful. Not that they always are. I mean, some propaganda is still pretty obvious and clunky and blatant, but a lot of it is slicker than it was, say, in the era of World War I. Like a lot of just regular mainstream Americans, if you show them some World War I propaganda, like they see through it right away. They're like, wow, that's really, you know, obvious and clunky. And then they, they go in and, you know, watch a, a movie about the CIA or a war or whatever like that today. And they completely don't see that, like, that's just as much a propaganda as that clunky World War I crap you were just looking at. Right. So they've gotten more skillful and sophisticated because they've honed uh, their craft as time has gone on. And then the um, the social media angle adds a whole nother dimension where social media can do censorship that most people don't don't recognize as censorship uh, in a way that if if the government was doing what they did in World War One, right, where they were literally locking up thousands of Americans in federal prison under the Espionage and Sedition Acts, like that would be bad optics. 
And lots of regular blue pill people would be like, wait, this seems kind of messed up that you're just like massively arresting people for saying stuff the government doesn't like, right? So they can, in a much more uh, subtle and, and often hidden way, they can, they can censor and manipulate things by just having the, the social media companies, you know, do things quietly by, by, you know, censoring people, shadow banning people, um, you know, manipulating the algorithms, whatever it is. So, yeah, I, I think the propaganda has gotten much more effective and for that reason, much more dangerous. And one thing I always say is that the, the most effective propaganda is always going to be the propaganda that the fewest number of people actually recognize as propaganda, right? So it's the stuff that 99% of people will look at and go, that's news or that's entertainment or that's art or that's information or that's education, right? The stuff that the vast majority of people do not recognize is propaganda is going to be the best propaganda because the best trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people he didn't exist. Yeah. And I mean, in many cases it is to some extent news and to some extent uh, science or educational or whatever, you know, media and, and, doesn't even have to be certainly propaganda doesn't have to be at all, you know, false. It doesn't imply like total falsehood, but you have, you do have to recognize that, you know, the creators of media have a certain interplay with the, um, with pow the power structure, with the powers that be, with the people that uh, broadcast and promote media, not just obviously create the media. And uh, you know, you're, just going to have to come into things with an ex expectation. And sometimes I'm kind of glad like people have, there are certain people on, on the fringes admittedly that don't have this expectation that like media that's pushed, I don't know, commercially or mass media, is it going to default to like, I don't know, backing up or supporting the mainstream narratives or the, um, the power structures and you know because one would expect that to be the case and i think we are in a, te a position technologically where are maybe there are some of us on like the, the front end of this curve that have this expectation that you know the type of media technology we have available to us now and interconnectivity we have um will allow that expectation to kind of go away that, that media doesn't have to you know Pull, pull a mainstream narrative and attitudes and push push these things or just reinforce these things because um, they don't ha certainly don't have to at this point. But, you know, it is healthy to realize that, y you know, anything that's going to have significant interplay with major institutions, major corporations or other forms of institutions, government or otherwise, um, are, are going to generally reinforce power structures yeah there's there's a natural tendency for that to happen and then the those in the power structure usually are actively trying to cultivate that sort of relationship even more than it would just sort of on its own you know naturally and spontaneously occur uh for sure i mean all, all you gotta do is look back at it like ancient history and how often a king or a pharaoh or an emperor or whatever uh would have these sorts of relationships with the best media of propaganda at that time, which usually would be like the state religion, whatever it was. And then with um, early historians and, and with playwrights and whatever, right. Um, the, the earliest historians 
were usually court historians, meaning they were employed by kings and pharaohs and stuff to write the history of that guy's uh, rule or that guy's dynasty or whatever. And obviously, if if you're a scribe and the pharaoh hires you to write the history of his dynasty, like you're not going to be taking an objective look and trying to air any dirty laundry that you find out about or whatever, right? You're going to be um, just writing, oh, the pharaoh is the greatest guy and his dynasty is awesome and he won all these wars single-handedly and he's a god and whatever. And, um, you know, if you do that, then the pharaoh is going to give you whatever, money, a nice place to live, women, whatever. And uh, meanwhile, if the pharaoh hires you to write his history and you show up and you're like, well, actually, I dug up some real dirt here. And let me tell you, uh, you're actually a corrupt psychopath and, you know, started wars for BS reasons and and did all these crimes and whatever. Like, not only is the pharaoh not going to pay you, uh, you're probably going to end up tortured to death, uh, you know, in no time flat. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to what Sex said about when we, not to go far, far back to the Pharaoh, but when we had, uh, or when there existed in, in this country, three podcast networks. Okay, I was saying that um, just going back to the era when there were three broadcast networks, you know, you, you would have, we, we certainly have an understanding that, okay, yes, to get through those like gates, to get, um, for media to get exposure, just to, just to be able to be, either you know produced or funded or to be actually seen by people you know you'd have to have significant interaction with the power structure and wouldn't be able to buck to, to buck that but you know i think the healthiest thing is i mean sure if, if you want to say i don't want to expect media to kind of be able to push narr- narratives that's what media does is push narratives i mean some people the creators of media might often the people that rise to the top in, in big media um comp- or not even big not even big media institutions but medium to big you know connected media institutions might support the narratives of the power structure they often probably will that's the nature of how these things work but at the very least we can all broadly not just us on the fringes, but broadly, we can look at these these um, these this media as yes. Th- so the more exposure and the more intertwined it is with like uh, com- the commercial world and government and all that, which all is one web that goes together. And you know, as opposed to what's available now, truly like independent and grassroots stuff. At least one one. Thanks. At least there's stuff that does come up like, oh, I don't know, our podcasts and various other stuff and even flash your stuff with video and all kinds of, um, you know, in- input to it. You know, at least look at look at these things and say, hey, this is coming out of a corporate source. This is probably going to back mainstream narratives. And that's just to be expected as par for the course, just to ha- have this expectation of how I think power structures works instead of just, I don't know. I feel like some people have this just general revulsion to it and like, sure, but have an expectation that what you see is not like you're having this, this light bulb moment. Oh, that's propaganda. Like just have an expectation to some extent. It probably is going to be. Yeah. I I think more people are starting to wake up in recent years just to the fact that in particular, the, the corporate media is uh, full of shit and not to be trusted. And they might not be fully red-pilled uh, anarchists or whatever. They might not fully understand the the depth of the problem and the, the historical nature of the problem and how far back it goes. But they're at least starting to get like a basic 
sort of understanding of like, oh yeah, you can't trust these people. And I think that that's a very healthy and positive uh, trend that I hope continues. And I, I see a lot of parallels to the late, um, the late Cold War period where in, in the Soviet Union and in the Warsaw Pact countries, regular people, even though they, they might not have been like dissident political activists, they at least had enough common sense to realize that, you know, Pravda and all the other state media was just not to be trusted. And it took longer in the case of a place like the United States, because of course our media is not in most cases directly, you know, owned and run by the state. But so, you know, like nominally these are private corporations, but you know, we all know that they're connected in all sorts of ways uh, to the, to the state and they basically are, working for them and working for their advertisers who are also big corporations connected to the state, like big pharma and military industrial complex companies and whatever. And so I, I, I do kind of get the sense that more just regular people who don't, you know, research this stuff at all are just from their own common sense starting to realize like, yeah, you can't assume that what CNN is telling you is like, you know, the objective truth about something going on or the New York times or whoever it is. And, and to me that, that, that is one of the reasons to be, uh, cautiously optimistic and and be a, l- a little bit hopeful, um, because yeah. I think if, if more people could wake up to that, that that might make a huge difference. That's exactly what I was talking about, actually. And I'm, I'm glad that you, obviously, the history guy, p- pointed out the historical um, parallel to that. And like, really, uh, I I honestly think that to some level or another, that having um, you know everyone just think like that. And just have that critical lens is probably better than everyone being red pilled because I mean I don't I don't know what that would entail or if that's even desirable or healthy. But let's let's look at let's let's look at things critically and have I think realistic expectations based on what we do generally know about how power structures work. So if you got time for one more question. Um, We've mentioned power structures a number of times. And um, I, I do remember, I don't know, it was a little while ago now, you had a, a short episode where you mentioned that you would no longer be using the word capitalism. Um, and if you could kind of talk about, you know, why why that is, because I agree with you, but why, why you came to that conclusion, and also how much do you think that class and the power elite play a role in uh, the the events of uh, our current society and how events transpire. Okay, well, I'll I'll try to not. Uh, if we don't have off. time, we can kind of we can cut it yeah, short. Yeah, no, no, I I I can I can address that. I'll I'll just try to not, um, you know, go go down too many uh, divergences and whatever. But yeah, well, basically, um, I. The main thing is I I no longer use the term uh, anarcho-capitalist to refer to myself or the word anarcho-capitalism to refer to my beliefs. And I, I, I stopped that uh, several years back. I, I started, you know, when I first started reading people like Rothbard, and I still agree with much of what Rothbard has to say about most things. Um, but but I do have some disagreements with him here and there about a few things. But I, I was persuaded uh, a listener a long time ago emailed me or messaged me or something with the distinction between anarcho-capitalism and uh, market anarchism. 
and referred me to a very interesting book called uh, Markets Not Capitalism, right? Now, before I read that book and, and encountered market uh, anarchism, I didn't really know what that was or how it was distinct from anarcho-capitalism. And the distinctions are mostly fairly subtle. But the basically, there's a, there's a number of issues to me with if you're someone who who wants like a i don't even know how to put it a really decentralized free world then there's issues with using the word capitalism um on a number of levels and a lot of it has to do with the fact that capitalism has historically had different meanings and in practice what capitalism has often meant has been corporatism, has been, you know, kind of like mercantilist corporatism or economic fascism or something like that, where there's these giant corporations, very often, which would not be as giant and powerful as they are without various types of state uh, intervention, that are in this incestuous relationship with the state, basically like what we live in right now, right? And, you know, whether it's right or because to me, when, when people are like clinging to the word capitalism and they mean basically like what I would mean when I say market anarchism, they're in the same boat as the that's not real socialism people, right? Because if you if you point at our existing system, which most people walking around will say is capitalist. Now, you know, maybe they're maybe they shouldn't have that label, but they do, right? And they go, Yeah, this is capitalism, this this crappy system we're living in right now in modern America. Um to me, it's a it's a weak counter to go. That's not real capitalism. You're just like the person in who you know you point out, hey, communism was pretty bad under the Soviet Union, and they're like, well, that wasn't real communism. You know, that that's just not a it's just not a strong, um, sustainable position in my opinion. That's likely to convince anybody. Uh, it 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 just makes your whatever ism you're you're pleading for seem, you know, really unrealistic and weak, and what have you. Um, and so also I've gotten more and more, um, uh, sympathetic to like anarchism without any labels or prefixes and even some, though by no means all, uh, aspects of certain types of left anarchism. And I, I do think that there is something inherently, uh, dangerous and potentially oppressive about large hierarchical uh, corporate institutions that should be looked at warily by anybody who's like a genuine radical individualist and decentralist. So f for that reason, I, I no longer would describe myself as an anarcho-capitalist. Um, and, and regarding, you know, questions of class and power elite, like I, th I think Marx got certain aspects of his class analysis right. And in particular, one point that I think a lot of Marxists are correct on is the way that in, in historical practice, states generally are like the base superstructure idea of Marxism, that states generally are working on behalf of whatever are the biggest economic interests of their society. And so as long as there is a state, there's going to be... And 
as long as there's a state, but there's also some amount of private economic activity happening, I think you're always going to tend towards what we have in modern America and throughout much of the world today, where there's this mercantilist corporatist system where nominally a lot of the economy is private, this sort of economic fascism, where nominally a lot of the economy is private, but it's actually got this this uh, quid pro quo relationship with the state where they help each other out. And very often there's, of course, the revolving door going between people working for the state and people working for the big corporations that are connected to the state. So, yeah, um, to me, very often in practice, capitalism means corporatism, and I don't like corporatism. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that your uh, market's pilled. Market's not capitalism. I think uh, we wouldn't have this. We largely wouldn't have this podcast, or this is a that's a large reason why we have this podcast. I mean, that was very um, changing. I'm personally moved moved away from specific um, political labels. I, I'm, I'm into markets, and other than that, I try to stay kind of label free. But um, certainly, that's those ideas are pivotal. I know Seth and I are both very friendly to the concept of markets and just to divorce them from, you know, necessarily. So, so, so the reality, so as a historian, you're looking at the recent and, and far history of, you know, these concepts. And when you're, when you're thinking of any sort of radical politics, you're thinking of something that doesn't have a basis in like a, a recent and probably in any kind of past history or any kind of, basis you're looking for radical change and this is necessarily something that you would have to have to have like uh markets really serving people in the way that they most definitely could and i think really as as a historian um i'm a very historically minded person too because i think uh word so word like capitalism that word was coined at a certain time and actually that's known it's documented the first so and so uses of the word capitalism and, and its growing tendency, what it meant, what it was, you know, what what it, what was the connotations of this word. And I think if you, I think there's a strong case that if you are historically minded like I am, or you are an actual historian like you are, you really would have a, a trouble to cling on to the word capitalism. Um, if you're also politically minded the way we are. Now, I guess if you have no problem with, you know, you know, the state, and, corp and corporations and, and the various institutions um, comprising the, the greater state, as we kind of t always often talk about, um, then that's another story. But I don't, I understand that I think there's a very kind of Austro-libertarian Ludwig von Mises kind of basis to their view of what they mean by capitalism mixed with just pure kind of vulgar libertarianism where it's just basically uninformed but they you know when you when you think back to to history and uh like vast history of various libertarian and anarchist and and socialist and and, and what and and what those meant in the past and include and what those mean in the present but the the various ideas that are interplay to kind of get us to where we're at now i don't think you could hold on to that word and like i don't think that i think that people for example like I, I think people there's very clear evidence that i've seen that people in the 19th century like you know had a very strong grasp of class very strong grasp of the difference between labor and capital and the struggles that happened in the more clear and very you know strong and often violent 
struggles that occurred um, as far as class struggle and stuff in that time. And it was also, things were very clearly delineated, I think, at that time. And I don't think that you can kind of bring that bring that term forward now and start to say, oh, that's a, it's the, it's the good thing that we're for. And, and you kind of basically summed up in your own way, you know, the whole, the whole argument from Roderick Long is that this, this, you know, neo-mercantilist system we have now, yada, 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 or is it the, you know, free markets and free, free voluntary exchange and whatnot. So, yeah, I, I don't think that of all people, I'm glad to hear that you have, have moved in this direction. And like, I, I'm not surprised at all because it, it, you, I think you have a, a very clear understanding. I'm sure you have a very clear understanding just from talking to you now and from all that I've heard about you of how, you know, just clinging on to the idea of capitalism and even just the term, a term that was literally like coined by, I think they have it, I've heard a couple different ideas, but literally coined to describe the, you know, the quid pro quo, Proniest, you know, uh, like you said, state, um, state-backed, and back and forth relationship between the uh, holders of large amounts of investable wealth and owners of the, the controllers of the means of production, and the government and the state and the rulers and the greater state, which comprises all these things, as we often talk about. Yeah, and that's that's something that that Rothbard actually first really kind of turned me on to. Um, that a, a lot of these giant these giants of of business say in american history these are not people that if you're like a true libertarian in the best sense of the word these are not people that you should admire right like john d rockefeller and jp morgan and the harrimans and like the, these these are not people that you should treat in the way ayn rand might treat right as like oh these are just people who went out into the into the marketplace and succeeded on, on pure merit and whatever. I mean, some of them, their careers began that way, but you know, once they amass a certain amount of wealth and power, they, they typically turn into um, political entrepreneurs and, you know, cause all sorts of damage. I mean, th these are people who are behind a lot of America's wars and um, you know, a lot of the worst aspects of, of the state. So yeah, these are these are not these sorts of guys are are not heroes, right? Any more any more than today, a true libertarian should should look up to, you know, Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or somebody like that. Yeah, certainly, and certainly, you made a good point about um, Marx being right to some extent about uh, a class and, of course, its relationship to power. And of course, I do hold strongly what you said that the the. Um, the base of the state is serving a certain economic interest. But yeah, I think, I think uh, Marx's class, it's a good start. It's a good place to go. And I don't really adhere to a very specific class um, theory because there, there are plenty of competing class theories out there, but I think to at least have a class theory to have an, or have an understanding of class as something that interplays into like, into, you know, uh, current politics and into history is important. It's crucial. It's something that you really can't, I think it's indispensable. I think it's something you really can't do without because I mean, there's certain, and certainly you can define classes really spe more specifically or more broadly, like uh, I would consider Marx a kind of a broad one, or you can kind of be a little fuzzy with it. But I think to not have the idea that states serve certain classes and struck and, and 
move society and change society in certain ways to, to serve certain interests. I think that's really an indispensable concept. I know you have to go soon, but um, yeah, uh, I think that's something that's really important to me. And I, I'm glad that you kind of are open to those kind of ideas. All right. Well, I know you got to run, CJ, so I won't hold you up, but uh, go ahead and just plug your stuff real quick. Yeah, sure thing. If you just put in dangeroushistorypodcast.com in your uh, web browser, you'll go to my homepage. Or if you just want to listen to episodes of the podcast, whatever podcatcher app or whatever you like to use, just search for Dangerous History Podcast. Look for the logo with the radiation symbol and you'll find it. All kinds of stuff there. Civil War, Revolutionary War, if you want to go back far. Uh, more recently, the Woodrow Wilson series still ongoing, and I'm currently in the middle of creating, I've actually recorded the first segment for it, a miniseries I'm going to do about World War I propaganda in the United States, which is extremely relevant and timely to what's going on right now. So anybody listening who's not familiar with my show, uh, go check it out. If you listen to this show, I'm sure you'd probably enjoy my show as well. Yeah, no, it's it's great, and uh, thanks for coming on again. This was a, a lot of fun, and um, I look forward yeah. to, to your, your upcoming series. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been fun. All right, see you, bud. Take care, and everybody, be excellent to each other. I want